Hi, how are you doing? I'm deep in the woods. It's cool and green and shady. And above me in the trees, there's a little troop of long-tailed tits calling companionably to each other. They're often called flying teaspoons because their bodies are so tiny and their tails so long. This is quite a large wood on the edge of the village and I've been here twice before and both times I've got lost. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. As we move into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 21 of The Stubborn Light of Things. post a picture of this on the podcast website so do look it up right in the middle of the wood there's a sort of dell and in the middle of it is absolutely extraordinary tree and it's got a blue length of nylon rope hanging from it with the obligatory rope swing looks much used but the tree itself It's ropey and muscular and twisted. It looks like an old but very strong man. Wow, it's an old beach. It's very old. It's become riven and twisted. And it's vast. I've been writing a nature notebook column in the Times for some years and as I'm sure you know in November my columns will be collected together and published by Faber as the stubborn light of things. This extract unusually is from this year and not just this year but the weekend just gone. Here's my Times nature notebook for August 2020. I thought the swifts had all flown south but a neighbour appeared on my doorstep with closed hands and the dazzled facial expression that means someone is either newly in love or holding something feathered and otherworldly. It was a young swift, about three weeks old and not yet ready to fly, which had probably been blown out of its nest during a storm the night before. Unlike most fledgling birds, this swiftlet was neither helpless, nor ugly, nor cute. Although apus apus means footless, they do have feet, and it clung to my fingers with strong little claws and tried to bury itself in my t-shirt. 
folded, its wings reached about to its tail, and had not yet developed into the extraordinarily long scimitars it would need in order not only to fly to Africa, but to remain aloft for what could be several years. Yet its sleek head, with tiny beak and recessed eyes, already had all of the gravity of a terrible angel brought to ground. I drove it to my nearest volunteer swift rescuers, who pronounced it in good health and will feed it waxworms until it's ready to be released. They were looking after an unusual number of juveniles for this time of year, and it's not clear why some birds bred so late in the season. If you find a down swift, don't launch it into the air or out of a window. Hold it up on a flat palm, but if it doesn't fly, search for details of your nearest swift rescuer online. Suffolk is one of the UK's driest counties, and while the warm, fine spring made lockdown more bearable for those of us able to get outdoors, the prolonged lack of rain was bad news for farmers. Cereal yields have been low, and in some cases loss-making, though the hot weather meant that at least the harvest came in quickly, and in most cases without the need for the grain to be dried. When the dry spell broke, it broke over fields raised to stubble drawing from them a quick green aftermath of wildflowers and agricultural volunteers, potato seedlings in the rape fields, stray sugar beet where the wheat was, a single broad blade of maize emerging like a flag from between the barley rows. Already the stubble is being ploughed, the earth turned under and harrowed to a tilth, ready to be drilled again. The crops that were planted last autumn when I moved to this village and which I watched grow, change colour and ripen through months of lockdown have now been gathered in. A brief moment to breathe and gather our thoughts and then the cycle starts again. I'm deep in the woods now. And I'll be honest, I have no idea where I am. The light is filtering down, green and dappled, and you can hear the breeze in the trees above me. I'm at the confluence of three tracks, and there's some evidence of logging. There's a trunk that's been felled and sawed, and the, the bark and the sawdust are left. But the tracks are very, very overgrown, and little used. This isn't your average amenity wood for joggers and dog walkers with litter bins and dropped gloves. This is an old wood that was managed for timber for a long time and, and is a little bit now but not much. It's full of deer. There are droppings everywhere and deer flies and there are brambles laden with blackberries. And there are some very, very old trees and some quite young ones. It would have once supplied wood for the village, for everyone's fires. And it was divided into sections and you can still see those sections now marked out by wood banks. And they would have been felled on a rotational basis. So there was always some newly planted, some growing, some maturing, some being felled. And it's a really rich little ecosystem this wood because it's very very diverse it's not a monoculture of 
Sitka spruce on native trees with lots of shade and not much living in it. It's uh, very species rich and it's dynamic and that's really important. It's changing because it's being opened up and used and so the light levels change and the deer are changing in as well, moving seeds around, creating more open areas with grazing, using the, the ponds that are dotted in the woodland, which I can never find. It may not look like much, it's not, uh, it's not a bluebell wood, but it's important. My guest this week is Helen MacDonald, author of H's for Hawk, and a new collection of essays, Vesper Flights, which comes out in three days on the 27th. Helen and I met not long after I published my first novel and not long before H's for Hawk came out. And I remember her saying, I've written this thing, I don't even know what it is, I don't really know if it's a thing. It was a thing. I'm really excited to read Vesper Flights. If you want to taste, then look up her recent New York Times magazine essay, The Mysterious Life of Birds Who Never Come Down. It's heart-stopping stuff. One reviewer has said that Helen's prose has a drenching clarity, and that's exactly right. So I'm sitting in my tiny garden, and because it's late summer, it's it's pretty quiet out here now. Um, the harvest has just been brought in, so the field behind my house is this expanse of pale shorn barley stalks and the only birds I can hear are calling they're not singing and um, there's a few sparrows I've just failed to capture um, on tape the little musical notes of a flock of goldfinches going over and I can just about hear the burr of distant rooks and the thing is about this dark strange summer um, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about normality about what is normal and the thing is also, over the last few months, I've not been doing what I think I should have been doing. I've spent a lot of time telling myself that I should go out into my local area to discover places that I've not seen before, you know, heal my soul with their newness, search for hidden lanes and woods and plants and creatures I've not seen before. But in fact, I've not done that at all. And what's mostly kept me going um, confession, you know, apart from talking to friends online and eating pints of ice cream and watching action movies, is sitting in my kitchen watching um, the very common birds that hop about my garden doing incredibly normal everyday things. And they're birds you can see almost anywhere. Um, there's like feral pigeons and sparrows and starlings and robins and the occasional blue tit. And I've been mesmerized by them precisely because of their ubiquity their reliability and their normality. The fact that they're part of the nature of home. I've watched a sparrow with um, its eyes half closed, turned on its side, luxuriantly dust bathing in a scrape of sandy soil. And yesterday, a handful of young starlings, now wearing their autumn spotted waistcoats, marched across my little lawn, sticking their half open beaks in the soil to prospect for grubs. I think before the pandemic, I was still deep down trapped in the notion that to experience nature properly, we have to travel to find it and seek it in really wild places. 
But now that seems to me a really strange intuition and, and not just because such a notion is less than practical for most of us or many of us. I've learned that normality can be all that we need, that we don't need to strike out into the wild to receive venison from it. Because from one place, we can witness the sweep and dip of the universe around us. The stars over the rooftops, the starlings on the wires, the falcus spider that sits carefully guarding her eggs in the topmost corner of my kitchen cupboard, the pigeons that land on my lawn before flying off elsewhere. The realization that we can become deeply connected to the world through paying the most careful and fearless attention to what we can see from wherever it is we must be. Well, I'm completely off piece now. I'm standing knee deep in dog's mercury. And below that is a carpet of sphagnum moss and dead wood and leaves that have been allowed to just rot into the forest floor. There are ferns and bracken being picked out by the shafts of sun that come filtering down. I'm standing amid beech trees in this section and there's a distant buzzard calling. Where is the track? <laughs> Helen talked in her piece there about normality and what is normal. It's something I thought about a lot when I was a kid. All I wanted was to be normal, whatever that meant. And I think by normal, what I meant was acceptable. Am I acceptable? Or is there something about me that means that I might not, I might not fit in or I might not be loved? I think that's the case for a lot of kids. But I think the younger generations are getting better at valuing difference. Of course, being humans, we will undoubtedly mess up that rather precious change and start punishing people for being normal soon because we, we're not allowed nice things. But for the moment, you know, the, the difference that I see in my nieces and nephews and nibblings and godchildren, it feels like real progress. What I wonder more about, though, is it might be true that we're getting better at not being normal in terms of our identities, but I wonder if it's the case for our needs and desires. There's a really popular um, subsection of the Reddit website, um, Relationships Reddit, and there's an acronym that's used a lot there, which is AITA, Am I the Arsehole? And people bring their relationship issues, the arguments they've had, um, the conflicts, and they ask, Am I the Arsehole for XYZ? And I used to do that as well, all the time. And it used to come up in arguments in my relationships what do other people think you know in the court of imagined public opinion whose side would people be on is it normal to behave like this it was always 
what's the majority view or my imagined majority view. Real breakthrough came for me when I learned that I could want to need things that weren't sanctioned by the majority and that was still okay. I was actually allowed to set my own rules and boundaries and say, this is what I need and this is something I can't cope with and that's just how it is. Obviously that's not a license to be a tyrant because you have to keep good faith with yourself. But I think the question of are we normal too often leads us away from who we really are and what we really need. There's a cloud of millions of tiny, tiny, tiny fruiting bodies of, of a fungus here on the ground. They are very pale grey. Some of them only the size of a pinhead going up to the size of the tip of my little finger. And they remind me of uh, the Hattifatners in the Moomin books. The little white creatures that follow thunderstorms and all crowded together. They were growing under the dog's mercury. I wonder what they're feasting on. This is the time of year when all the mushrooms and toadstools appear. The fruiting bodies of them do. The rest of them, the mycelia, live under the soil and, and can be vast. And they're part of a huge network of mycorrhizae and saprophytes and bacteria and all sorts of microscopic organisms that are breaking everything down, turning it into available food for everything else. Some of the most important stuff in the world goes on in the soil under our feet and we know hardly anything about it. These fungal networks are part of the way in which trees communicate and we're finding out more about that all the time. Trees can share information under the soil about dangers and stresses. They can share nutrients. They can warn each other of coming dangers. And they do it through a partnership with fungus. I wonder what these little guys are thinking about. I wonder what they're telling the trees. Right, on we go. Gilbert White's diaries are a really rich resource in terms of understanding the norms in nature, when things happen, when they used to happen, compared to now. It's interesting that in this set of diary entries, he's noting the unusually late breeding of some swifts, just as I have this week. August the 24th, 1768. Much wheat bound up in the afternoon. Goldfinch sings. Oats are cutting. August the 24th, 1775. Wasps abound and destroy the fruit. Clouds about. Worms copulate. August the 24th, 1781. Though white butterflies abound and 
lay many eggs on the cabbages, yet through overheat and want of moisture they do not hatch, but dry and shrivel to nothing. One swift still frequents the eaves of the church, and moreover has, I discover, two young nearly fledged, which show their white chins at the mouth of the crevice. This incident of so late a brood of swifts is an exception to the whole of my observations, ever since I have bestowed any attention on that species of hirundines. August the 24th, 1783. Paid for four wasps' nests. Potatoes very fine, though the ground has scarce been moistened since they were planted. They were also very good last year, though the summer was mostly wet and cold. Fern owl glances and darts about in my garden in pursuit of moths with inconceivable swiftness. August the 24th, 1788. A stag, which has haunted Hartley Wood the summer through, was roused by a man that was mowing oats just at the back of the village. Several young persons pursued him with guns, and happening to rouse him again on the side of Knorr Hill, shot at him and then collecting some hounds from Emshot and Hawkley, they drove him to a large wood in the parish of West Meon, where they lost him and called off their dogs. August the 24th, 1789. A fern owl sits about on my field walks. August the 24th, 1791. Gathered kidney beans, scarlet, cut 80 cucumbers. There's not a lot of birdsong at this time of year, but what you can hear is the robin. They sing almost year-round, but with a, a brief break for molting. And their song really starts to stand out at this time of year when there's little competition. They're strongly territorial, both the males and the females, and they hold territory year-round, unlike most other birds. The males will fight to the death sometimes, which is a bit of a contrast with our Christmas card idea of them. They're the sort of ubiquitous bird, aren't they? They're the bird that even the smallest kid can draw. They're our idea of bird. That's partly because they're very tame, or in birding language, very confiding in this country. And that's thought to be partly because of the way that we garden. And they've learned to follow us around as we work. In fact, the European robins are a separate race and they tend to stick much more to woodland. They were once known as ruddocks, that's what Chaucer called them. And then they became known as redbreasts, which is a good, honest descriptor, like we say, red shank or oyster catcher, say what you see. The robin part was a sort of nickname, like we say, Jenny Wren. But then it became our modern term for the bird. As well as singing year-round, 
robins famously sing at night. And in fact, they did that before the advent of streetlights. So it's not a new phenomenon. But they're often mistaken for nightingales. And uh, I can't tell you how many inquiries I get, and I'm sure everyone else in the nature writing world gets from people in the heart of cities in the middle of November saying, I've got a nightingale outside my window. Sadly. Well, not sadly, because robins are a lovely bird, but no, it's not a nightingale. Well, with a little bit of help from my GPS mapping app, I've managed to find my way out of the tangled wood and I'm back on the path home. It's quite breezy. You can hear the, the wind in the branches of the trees above me. This week's poem is Pied Beauty by the Jesuit priest poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. It's a poem in praise of all things counter, original, spare and strange. It's read by the poet Liz Berry, whose little boys you met in episode two, who were proudly showing us their frog spawn. Liz's pamphlet, The Republic of Motherhood, is available now from Chateau. Pied Beauty by Gerard Manley Hopkins Glory be to God for dappled things For skies of couple colour as a brinded cow For rosemoles all in stipple upon trout that swim Fresh fire coal chestnut falls Finch's wings Landscape plotted and pieced Fold, fallow and plough And all trades Their gear and tackle and trim All things counter Original Spare, strange Whatever is fickle Freckled Who knows how With swift, slow Sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Mm-hmm.